at his birth, the politicians feared they would be unseated by one born to be king. Matthew 2, 1-16. John 18:37. As an adult, Satan tempted him with all the kingdoms of the world and the power of them and the glory of them. Luke 4, 6. At the height of his popularity as a preacher, his adoring followers tried to forcibly make him a king. John 6.15 And at the end, Pilate judged him on charges of seeking political power. Matthew 27 In every instance, Jesus showed no interest in power on earth, even declaring, My kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36 But that question... If Jesus were to run for president, would he win? On the one hand, we might immediately say it would be a landslide. How could anyone not vote for the perfect Son of God, the one who had all the answers, the one who was completely innocent, the one who loved everybody? But on second thought, but our second thoughts might produce second thoughts. For his own generation did not receive him well. Would our generation receive him any better? If Jesus were on earth tonight, the candidates would not have anything to fear. He desires no seat in the Oval Office. But let's think about that question tonight. If Jesus were to run for president, would he win? Four points tonight. Simple points. The first one, let's go to Isaiah 9, verse 6, and start in the Old, with the Old Testament prophets. The Prince of Peace would make an attractive candidate as the parties began in earnest about two years ago to select those who would be primed to run to the point where we are now in the election cycle, they were looking for certain characteristics. Is this person electable? Is this person in line with our party? Will this person be received well by the American people? But what about Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Seven centuries before His birth, the prophets said of Him, Unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. I've heard my brother Wade preach on that text before. And he's here tonight. He came the farthest. If we had buttons like you do in VBS, he might get to where they came the farthest button. He lives in Texas, but he's at Indian Creek this week and he drove up. Glad to have him here. But when he preaches on Isaiah 9 6, he points out that this text shows a microcosm of Jesus' entire earthly life. Unto us a child is born, there's the cradle. 
Unto us a son is given, there's the cross, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, there's the crown. So Jesus goes from the baby to the preacher to the king in that one verse. And that verse points Jesus points out Jesus' role in the world would be to be a prince. He was born to be a leader of people. But not a, but not a prince who comes to power bathed in the blood of the enemy. Not a prince who comes to power on a wave of violence where he has subdued others to get to that position. He's a prince, but he's a prince of peace. And his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Now there was nothing about Jesus that would make him attractive physically as a leader, the Bible says, that he had no form or comeliness or beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53.2. Yet there was something about his personality and his lifestyle that caused the common people to hear him gladly, Mark 12.37. Many thousands of people came to listen to Jesus preach and to observe this prophet of God who had recently come to Galilee. John 12, 20, and 21. Jesus had so many characteristics that would have made him a great president. Jesus loved the lowly, the widows, the children, the outcasts. The gospel according to Luke is sometimes called the gospel of the outcasts. And the next time you read it, notice how it emphasizes Jesus reaching out to the women in his society. Jesus taking the children and noticing them. Jesus touching lepers. Jesus discussing spiritual things with publicans. Jesus loved the common man. But Jesus was not only a man of the people, that is of the average, he also cared about those who were rich and powerful. You find in Mark 10, 21, for instance, that there was a rich young ruler. The Bible nowhere calls him that exact phrase, but you put the three accounts of his interaction with Jesus together and that's what you come away with as a composite, a rich young ruler. And the Bible says that when he asked Jesus a question and Jesus answered it, he followed up with another question saying, These things have I done for my youth up. What like I yet? And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said. Jesus loved this man. He wasn't a common man. He wasn't an average person. He was rich. He was wealthy. He was powerful. But Jesus loved him. And we find that Jesus had followers from the upper, from the upper part of society. Matthew 27, 57, there was a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph that came to help with the burial of the body of Jesus. So from one end of the spectrum to the other, Jesus cared about and interacted with everyone. You find it again in Luke 7, 36-50. He was in the home of a certain Pharisee named Simon. And he was invited. He accepted the invitation. He went there even though Pharisees did not generally invite Jesus places. They, they instead generally walked along behind him and criticized him. But Jesus was willing to go even to a Pharisee's house. Everyone was important to Jesus. Not only was he a man of the people, but he also was a man of outstanding character. There were no skeletons in his closet. There is no little black book to be discovered of illicit relationships that would be an embarrassment to him. There were no sins that would somehow derail his campaign if Jesus ran for president. The Bible says he was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.21 He was holy, harmless, separate from sinners. Hebrews 7.26 His enemies 
had this thrown in their direction, which of you convinceth me of sin? John 8.46 You and I would not be comfortable asking those who love us and who are friends to us, can you find anything with me? We all know that we have our flaws. We have made our mistakes. But Jesus was confident even to say to His enemies who had constantly hounded Him and watched Him and tried to find things wrong with Him, tell me, what have you discovered that's wrong? And You see, He had nothing to hide. What a candidate He would have made. Not only that, but He understood people. John 2.25 He had solutions to problems. He was a good communicator. People heard Him gladly. Jesus had many characteristics that have made him a great candidate for the highest office of our land. Other men sought glory by the slaughter of their enemies on fields of battle. Jesus sought his glory by the slaughter of himself on the cross. Other men sought for crowns of gold to wear. Jesus accepted a crown of thorns. Others looked for other people to serve them that they might be the ruler. Jesus was willing to serve others that they might be His followers. Jesus stooped to die that He might conquer death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57. We also see this point from Matthew eleven eighteen 18, and 19. Jesus, the friend of publicans and sinners, an effective campaigner. Jesus crisscrossed the land of Palestine many times, going from village to village, from hamlet to hamlet, from city to city, from feast day to feast day, letting the people get to know Him, letting them see the only perfect life that had ever been lived, letting them hear His speeches, His sermons, that they might know the will of God, that they might see true righteousness demonstrated before them and hear the truth of God in a way so clear as they had never heard it before. And Jesus was constantly, tirelessly preaching the message of the kingdom of heaven. And we find Him in every circumstance. We find Him in the city of Jerusalem dealing with the doctors of the law, even as a boy, Luke chapter 2. We find Him in Samaria, where others would not go, reaching, shining the light of the gospel there. We find him with the average people who are sick and hurting and needful. We find him campaigning with, not, not for the presidency, but for the kingdom's sake. Look at Mark, for instance. I don't know if you've noticed this in reading Mark before. Mark is the gospel that emphasizes Jesus as a servant. And in this, Mark is the, it's almost like, well, Johnny Ramsey used to say it this way, snapshots of the king, because Mark just gives us these snippets of Jesus' life. He's here, he's doing this, and then he's there, and he's finished with this, and he's in another place. These great miracles that Jesus did. And Mark also emphasizes the reception of the people. Read with me here beginning in Mark chapter 1. We won't go all the way through the book, but I'll give you a flavor of it. Look at Mark 1.28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. His fame is spreading. Notice again in verse 37. No, verse 33 and then 37. And the city was gathered together at the door. The whole city dismissed whatever they had going that day and assembled at the house where Jesus was. Verse 37, And when they had found Him, they said unto Him, All men seek 
for thee. Drop down to verse 45. And he went out and began to publish it much. This man who was a leper, Jesus has healed. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Well, you see why Jesus said that in verse 45, because he did not listen to Jesus and he told everybody, and this is what happened 45, but he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city. It was a hindrance to his work because the people were in the way. He could not go where he needed to go and deal with the ones he wanted to deal with because so many people were clogging the streets. But was, in, was, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. Even when he went away from the city and tried to find a quiet place, even there they would seek him out and find him. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 2, and straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Verse 15, and it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. Flip the page if your Bible is like my Bible, and you see in chapter 3, verse 20, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. You can go on through the book just like that. You see, Jesus was was an effective campaigner. People sought him out, and he gave them the opportunity to interact with him. Haggai 2.7 says that in prophecy, he would be the desire of nations. And it wasn't only his personal charisma that caused people to be drawn to him. He predicted, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, John twelve thirty two. And that prediction came true. You see, when Jesus was no longer alive on the earth for people to feel his personal magnetism or to observe with their own senses, with their eyes, their ears, what he was about. Jesus is still the most followed man on planet earth tonight. There are more people who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ than anyone who's ever lived. In fact, that's the world's most recognizable name. Wherever you might go, in whatever part of the world, even parts of the world where Jesus is not the predominant religion, or Christianity is not the predominant religion, they've heard of him. Yes, He was lifted up and He's drawn all men. You see, there's heaven's magnet for the human soul. Jesus was a great campaigner. The friend of publicans and sinners, Luke 7, 34, they said it in in jest or in mockery, but Jesus took it as a compliment. Let's think about a third one. We'll spend more time here than anywhere else tonight. Jesus, Rabbi of Nazareth, a controversial figure. It seems that everyone today has an opinion of Jesus. Many different groups, even contradictory groups, will claim that Jesus is endorsing their view of the world. In the worst cases, blasphemously is Jesus' name associated with sins that he would abhor. And yet, those who practice those sins, those who are defensive of those sins, will invoke His name in support of their behavior. In other cases, Jesus is just misunderstood, as He often was when He was on the earth. You take the common conception that Jesus was a hippie figure. That's what you'll read about more than anything else. I read 111 pages uh, of material that I collected, mostly from blogs and 
responses to blogs and writing the material that we're studying tonight that will be in House to House later this year. And I tell you, it was hard to go through those pages to see how Jesus is so misunderstood, how Jesus is so misrepresented, how people speak so arrogantly, so confidently about Jesus who know nothing about Jesus. But it seemed that one of the most common errors about Jesus is that he was a a hippie. You know, the artist's conception of the long hair that everyone has when they think of what Jesus might have looked like. Well, that, that was a mistake. Jesus was not a Nazarite that never let a razor come on his head. He was a Nazarene. He grew up in the city of Nazareth. And so that's a misconception. Jesus would have never taken drugs but you know, I read a number of times from different sources, someone who would, was, was of the opinion that they thought Jesus probably used some kind of cannabis when he was on the earth. You know, Jesus refused even to take the anesthetic that was offered to him as a medicine on the cross in the throes of horrific pain. Jesus tasted it and knew what it was and would not take it. Jesus was not a tumbleweed drifting as a parasite on society. No, Jesus was a respected member of his, of his generation. He was a teacher who led men around in the common fashion of that day. We go to school in a brick-and-mortar building. We sit in, in desks or chairs and we listen to someone lectures to us, but that's not the way they did school in those days. No, the, the rabbi, the teacher, would lead them through exercises outside, what we would call a field trip. And you see that with Jesus very often. For instance, in Luke 21, they're in the temple one day and he sees this woman. I picture her as being stooped and maybe on a cane and she's walking slow and she gets up and she drops her, we would say, two pennies in what some have called the trumpets because they were made of metal. When you drop money in them, it would make a noise. She dropped it in. Maybe she was trying to be quiet about it. And she began to make her way off. And Jesus got so excited. He called over to the disciples. He said, you see that woman? She's given more than all the rich people today. Luke 21, 2 and 3. Not because she gave more. When they counted it that day, they might not have even really tallied the two mites, the smallest amount of money someone could give. But it wasn't how much she gave. It's how much she had left after she gave. Because she gave all of her living. She didn't have any grocery money when she made her way out of that temple that day. She had given everything. You see, they were in school that day. So Jesus was not a hippie. He was a respected member of his society, a teacher, a rabbi, an honorable profession. When you think about Jesus, the controversial figure, he was controversial and misunderstood in his own generation. People who heard the same sermons, who observed the same life, who interacted with the same person, came away with different views of him. You see it in John 7, John 9, John 10, where these arguments take place. He's the prophet of God. Will a prophet come out of Galilee? Search and look. Um, He's not a prophet. Can Can one open the eyes of the blind who's not of God? Can't be of God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. You see this back and forth over and again. He was controversial. Those who wanted true religion saw what was really there. Those who were defending of their traditions found reasons not to want to obey or to follow Him. So, 
I want to ask the question now, that we'll spend balance of, most of the balance of the hour on. If Jesus were here in our generation, what platform would he run on for president? It's interesting that many of the same issues that are facing our society, his society faced, and we can put together an informed platform for Jesus by studying his speeches, his conversations, and his actions. And many of the things I think you'll agree as we go through these tonight, his words, without even any comment, fit our generation. In some cases, we'll take time to explain. In other cases, we'll just let his words stand. We'll be careful not to take them out of context lest we make him say something he did not say. But it's not only the red words or the red letters of the New Testament that are his. The title page of your New Testament says the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. All 260 chapters of the New Testament are his. All 27 books. John 14, 26, John 16, 13, Jesus promised, I will send the Holy Spirit to you and he will guide you into all truth. And He will bring to your remembrance the things that I've taught you. And so when we read the New Testament, we are reading His words when they're red. We're reading His words when they're black. It's all His. And so we can find the mind of Christ in, his, in the pages of the New Testament. But not only that, the Old Testament was given by the inspiration of God. Who's God? God is the Father of Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Matthew 3.16 and 17. This is my beloved Son. And Jesus and His Father always agreed. John 10.30, John 14.9, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So, we can find out much about the views of Jesus from the Old Testament that He lived under, He endorsed, He quoted, He preached, and included much of it, much of the same doctrine in the New Testament, even though He replaced the Old Testament after the cross. So, that will be what we do for the next few minutes. Let's look at, I have 15 on that little card. We'll see how many of these we can get through in the next few minutes. What would Jesus say about government and society? Let's just start at uh, the, the basis or the foundation. I suppose the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth in our generation, if He were running for president about our generation, about our society, how could it be improved? Might be, Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12. You know, it would be like turning a light switch on day and night if that simple sentence became the law by which every neighbor, every citizen, every person in this country lived. Just to treat others like they want to be treated. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14.34 But what is righteousness? Whose righteousness are we going to endorse or follow? Psalm 119.172 All thy commands are righteousness. Psalm 9.17 All the nations that forget God shall be turned aside or turned into hell, King James, or Sheol, 
Nations that forget God are soon forgotten nations. The Gospel is written for individuals, for people, not for governments. But if government officials would read their Bibles and live by what they say, we would have a far greater land tonight. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about a second one. What about racism? That's uh, an area that keeps coming up in our society again and again. What would Jesus say about it? You could say that Jesus was colorblind when he was here. To Jesus, all men were equal. Whether they were Jew or Gentile or Samaritan, they were all made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 And they all needed salvation from Him. Romans 3.22 and 23. When Jesus went into a little village called Sychar, it's in Samaria, it's recorded in John chapter 4, He did something that we might read over with our modern... uh, culture and not even really notice that anything unusual was taking place. But this is a a monumentous occasion. For most Jews would not travel through Samaria. I don't know if you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you have it memorized, but if you have the picture of Palestine in your mind, and you know the River Jordan runs through the middle of it, Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south, Samaria is in the middle on the west side of the Jordan River, and on the east side of the Jordan River is Perea. Most of the Jews who were going to a feast day in Jerusalem from Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan River. They would come down through Perea. They would cross back over the Jordan River and go up the mountain to Jerusalem in the temple. Why would they cross a river twice? Sometime, during parts of the year it was dangerous even to do so. To avoid going through Samaria, which is where the Samaritans lived. But Jesus is walking through Samaria. And in doing so, this one conversation that he has when he's sitting on a well, Jacob's well outside that city, and a woman comes up to draw water, and he has a conversation with her, and he demonstrates that he has torn down the three great barriers between human beings. Number one, the racial barrier. She was a Samaritan, he was a Jew. If you go back historically to see the difference in those, when God's people were carried away in captivity because of their sin, other nations were brought into the same land where they had lived and populated it. Some, the very poor of the land, those who were not made good slaves, those who were too old to travel or for other reasons were left behind, married these foreigners who became their neighbors. And over the centuries... When the, eventually, after decades, when the children of Israel came back, they settled all around them, but it was as if there had been a wall built because they were not as good as the full-blooded Jews. They were half-breeds. They're, they're a mixed race. And of course, the response from the Samaritans was to be just as bitter toward the Jews as the Jews were toward the Samaritans. But here Jesus is in Samaria talking to a Samaritan as a human being. Now she seems at first to throw this up in his face. She says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. If you look up what that phrase translates in the, in, from the Greek and the English, and I'm no Greek scholar, but I looked it up, and this 
it refers to the Jews will not drink after the Samaritans. They won't use the same drinking vessels lest they be contaminated. What did Jesus just ask for? Can I have a drink of water? He was asking to drink from a vessel of the Samaritan. And she said, the Jews have no demons. What, you're asking? Jesus was tearing down that barrier. Now, from her perspective, she thought Jesus was so desperately thirsty that he was willing to put aside the social mores long enough to get a drink of water. And she's a little standoffish. She's a, she's a little um, irritated at the beginning of the conversation. But Jesus responds with such love, such reason, that before it's over, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's go back to the, conversa- the initial conversation. He tore down the racial barrier. Number two, he tore down the gender barrier. Samaritan women were considered to be unclean to the Jew from the cradle, according to the Mishnah. Most Jewish men would not talk with any woman in public in that generation, but they for sure would not talk to a Samaritan woman under any circumstance. But Jesus struck up a conversation with her. And the third barrier was religion. And she asked him about that. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem we men ought to worship. She's asking him about Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans had built their own temple there and it was never authorized by God and Jesus says as much. You should have been worshipping but the hour is coming and now is when that's not really going to matter anymore. For God seeketh men, women to worship Him and speak in truth. And you can worship God any way that you want to You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore in the New Covenant. So he tore down. I'm going to turn this off and just use this. All right. We're getting some feedback. Jesus tore down down the barrier of racism. He tore down the barrier of gender. And he tore down the barrier of religion in that one conversation. And because he treated her with such love and respect, she went into the city and she told the others, I've met a man who told me all things that ever I did is not this the Christ. And they came out. And many in that city believed on him because Jesus loved all people. You see, he tore down the the barriers of racism. This is a message that needs to continue to be preached from our pulpits, isn't it? What is it that that Romans 2.11 says? God has no respecter of persons. And who are we children of? Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter at the house of Cornelius said, God's no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. James 2, verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. That's the platform Jesus would run on if he were here today. What about number three? What about economics? Mikhail Gorbachev, former Soviet leader, said... In a speech in London years ago, Jesus was the first socialist. He was the first to seek a better way for mankind. Is that right? The first socialist. And reading uh, from all this material I collected, you know, the, there are many Americans who believe that Jesus was a socialist. Where did they get that idea? Jesus was no socialist. 
Jesus was no Republican. Jesus was no Democrat. Jesus was no political entity of any kind. He was a monarch. But even then, his kingdom was not of this world, John 18.36, for he was not of this world, John 8.23. And the gospel was so designed as not to be tied to any one form of government. It was, it was made to go into all the world, to every nation, and men and women could obey it and live under various forms of government. Now, what you think about, when you think about socialism, there are some parts of the gospel that some might say, well, that sounds like some of the things the socialists have said. Don't be greedy. Share. Love your neighbor or your brother. Sometimes people will say, well, Jesus told that rich young ruler that he was to sell all of his property and give to the poor and come and follow me. Mark 10, 21. It's true, he did. But he never told any other follower to do that, even the rich ones. Why is that? Well, when you continue reading in Mark 10, verse 23, verse 24, verse 25, when this man walked away sorrowful for he had great possessions, verse 22 says, verse 23, Jesus said, how hard it is. Hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And then they ask him about that. And he follows up, verse 24, again, in verse 25, it's easier for, a rich man, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, when you look at the context, what he's saying is this man whom he had just looked at and loved him, he saw a barrier in his heart to being a Christian and going to heaven. He said he loves his possessions too much. If you're ever going to make it to heaven, you're going to have to sell your possessions and come and follow me. And Jesus was trying to help him to go to heaven. That man had a problem. Uh, not necessarily the, the, the riches, but the love of the riches. Joseph Arimathea, a rich man, but he was not told to sell his, sell his possessions, and so forth. You might also observe in the teachings of Jesus that he endorsed working for wages. In Luke 10:7, a laborer is worthy of his reward. Proverbs I believe this is 1726, but it might be 1627. But either way, it's in the book of Proverbs. A laborer laboreth for himself. You see that in Matthew 20:15 in the parable Jesus gave of the lab- of the the laborers, and the man was being criticized because they didn't like how much he had paid some of the workers, and he said. Is it not up to me to do what I will with mine own? That's paraphrased. In other words, as long as the money is mine, can't I pay this man as much as I want to pay and pay this man as much as I want to? And the implication is, yes, the money was his to do exactly that. The difference between socialism and Christianity is, is one word. Choice. Socialism takes the money and redistributes the wealth among people. Takes it by force. By law. Christianity leaves the decision to help another in the hands of the one who has the possessions. It encourages, it teaches, it even commands him to help others, but it's up to him ultimately whether he wants to do it or not. And he'll be judged according to his decision. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, for instance, those that are rich in this world charge, charge them, among other things, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. Has God given you a lot of possessions? They're not for hoarding. They're for helping. 
They're not just for you, they're for others as well. So be ready to distribute when there's a good cause, when there is a need. Same thing is found in Ephesians 4.28. This will be the rest of us. It says, let him that stole steal no more. So here's the people that were not living the right life at one point in the past, but now they're Christians. And now they don't make their living by stealing, pilfering from others. Instead, he says, rather let them labor with their hands, or labor with his hands, the thing which is good. Why? Well, there are other verses that say you labor to support your family. Other verses that say we labor to support the work of the kingdom. But this verse doesn't say that. This verse says that he may have to give to him that hath a need. Some of the money God gives us is for that purpose, is to help other people. So you have that uh, Jesus view of economics. Let's talk about number four. I can't bog down that much. Let's talk about poverty and welfare on the heels of that. How would Jesus, how would Jesus deal with the welfare system? Well, let's just examine some of His teachings and see how they might apply and that's in this modern culture. On the one hand, Jesus often spoke up in the defense of the oppressed. Much of His personal ministry was helping the poor people. In fact, the next time you read the book of Luke, I marked these verses to do this tonight, but I don't have time, but just go through and read the word poor in the book of Luke and see how often He interacted and helped and loved and spoke just to them. So Jesus often encouraged the poor. Not only that, but He taught His disciples to do that. In Luke 14, 13 and 14, He said, when you have a feast, don't invite the rich people. Invite the... The poor and the lamed and the ma- and the maimed and the blind that cannot recompense thee, and you have your reward. In other words, don't invite people over that are going to invite you over later. Invite poor people that don't have anything to set on their table for you to come back, and God will see that and He'll reward you. You see, He built that into the gospel that aspect of helping the poor. But on the other hand, Jesus was very balanced. On the one hand, he endorsed helping those who have a need. On the other hand, he endorsed working for a living. In fact, you could take Galatians 6.5 and Galatians 6.2 and use those as the two points that balance Jesus' view on poverty and welfare. In Galatians 6.5, the Bible says, Jesus through the Apostle says, Every man shall bear his own burden. That means everyone has to earn his own living. Under normal circumstances, you're supposed to get out of bed and go, go to work and earn the money that will support your family. I'm supposed to do that for my family. Now, verse 2 of the same chapter says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Wait a minute, which is it? Bear my own burden, bear each other's burden. Which it? It's both. It's a different word that's used in verse 2 than used in verse 5. Verse 5 is a word that would be used for a soldier's backpack. Here he's received his kit. They've given him a backpack. He's, he's assembled it. He's in the field. He is to carry that backpack all day and then at night he will have what he needs to make camp. He's not supposed to ask his buddy, here, carry my backpack and yours at the same time. I don't want to carry it anymore. No, it's his backpack. He's to carry it. But if that soldier's wounded on the battlefield... If he can't carry his pack anymore, his buddy's going to pick it up and carry it with his. He's going to reach down and pick up his buddy and 
and carry him or drag him off the battlefield. That's an emergency situation. That's an extreme circumstance. That's what verse 2 is talking about. It's a different word. It means a heavy burden in verse 2. So here's someone who's been in a car accident. He has lost his job. Here's someone who has a a, a difficult circumstance right now and and the Christians say, we're going to help him. We're going to go mow his grass. We're going to contribute next Sunday anything over our regular budget. We're going to give to this family that has a need. You see, Jesus said help the poor, but He also said um, a man that will not work, neither should he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 And He said, if any man will not provide for his own, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. Well, that clock back there has messed us up. We're going to have to stop. And we got about four of these. That's all right. It'll be in the article later if you get house to house and you can read uh, the rest of those. But I want to move to our last point in our last uh, five minutes and talk about the risen Christ, the winning ticket. The... Most critical issue is nothing that we've talked about tonight. The most critical issue is not who is going to be president. The most critical issue is who is going to be Lord. Who's going to be who's going to be not elected to the highest office of this land and how that affects our pocketbook. What's most important, most critical tonight is how my decisions will affect my eternity. Matthew sixteen twenty six says. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 2 Peter 1.10 says that we are to make our calling and election sure. Did you know that you're involved in an election that will last a lot longer than the presidential election this year? Somebody put it this way. In, in the spiritual election, God voted for you and the devil voted against you and you cast the deciding vote. I wonder tonight, who will you vote to be the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul? The most important election in the land tonight is the one for your soul. Now, have you become a Christian Have you let this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, become not your president, but your Master and your Savior? You could respond tonight, sweeten your lips with those ten most precious words you will ever string together. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8.37 Based on that confession, your desire to turn away from sin and to follow Him, you could be immersed in water tonight. And every sin that you've ever committed, I don't know how many that is. It would be a different amount for every person in here. It may be that you've been in sin for a lot of years. It may be that you've only been in sin for a little while. But how many sins does it take for one to be lost? Only one. And how many sins can be forgiven? All of them, regardless of whether there was a hundred or ten thousand tonight, they could all be washed away in the, with the blood of the Lamb and your obedience to Him in being baptized. The last thing Jesus said before He went back to heaven, according to Mark's account, go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. I picture Him 
as taking that hand that still had the hole in it from the nail. Remember Thomas was said, touch, touch my... He still had it. And he, he pointed with that hand to the world he had just died for. And he said, go tell them I died for them. But what else do you want me to tell them, Lord? Is that it? Just that? No, he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's why Jesus died. That we might be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned or shall be damned. You don't want to be in that group. Oh, what a, what a shame it would be if there was a single person who's in this room tonight that on the judgment day heard the words, Depart from me. I know you not. Depart from me. I never knew you. All the tears that we would shed. Oh, how we would give, oh, what we would give at that moment to have one more opportunity like the one we have right now to say, I want to become a Christian. Maybe you haven't any longer been following Jesus as your Lord. Maybe you cast your vote for Him in your youth. But you've gone back on that promise. Gone back into the world. Maybe to a large degree. Maybe not so large, but you've forsaken Him. And you say tonight, I want to come home. I want to start again. Why not tonight? We'll pray with you and for you. We'll baptize you into Christ. Let that be your desire. If you'll let it be known while we stand and as we sing.